0: You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith. You're about to listen to a conversation between myself and David Ellison. As many of you will already know, David is a bass player and longtime collaborator with Megadeth main man David Mustaine. He's also in Metal Allegiance, and that's the reason for the conversation today. David and I chat about Metal Allegiance's second album. It's called Volume 2, Power, Drunk, Majesty. Let's have a listen to what David has to say. Here we go. Hi, it's David. Hey, David, Andrew McKay-Smith calling for our chat. How are you going? Yeah, Andrew, how are you? I'm plugging away. uh, It's been a good week, actually, for interviews because I had a chat to, amongst others, Scott Ian yesterday. Now I've got yourself today. And I must say, you're both people that I've had on my bucket list for some time. So I'm rather thrilled to be chatting to you, particularly also, too, because I'm a bass player. Very cool. Nice. Nice. I've been following Megadeth. Uh, particularly through the 90s. I've got to say, I've tuned out a little bit recently only because you get older and you get other commitments and following bands isn't something you're able to do as closely as you're able to do it when you've got kids and all the uh, pressures of a day job and all the rest of it. But I've got to say, mate, your material in Megadeth through the 90s was... I've said this a couple of times to artists, but I, I, I especially mean it when I'm talking to someone who's in the band, but Cryptic Writings was an album that I must have listened to front to back for about a year and a half solid. So I want to thank you for writing that record because I don't think you guys get enough credit for what you created on that. I think it's a beast of an album, and I actually think it's the best album in the Megadeth catalog.
1: Wow. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, it's funny. I agree <laughs> with you on that. Um, <laughs> you know, there was a spirit around that album. We were sort of re—we weren't rebuilding, but it was interesting because. You know, Euthanasia was internationally a very well received album, mm-hmm. but we were disappointed in America only and it was all, and it wasn't because of the response to it, it was mostly because MTV went away, Seattle music took over, it mm-hmm. was just some very weird moment in time, you know, and, and to go in and <clears throat> cryptic writings, we intentionally went, Okay, how do we be Megadeth yet not be a total thrash band all the time, yet have songs that can continue to cross over? Mm-hmm just basically keep our career alive, like you the know, yeah. destruction type material. Um, and yet, you know, we I think we hit the bullseye. We did a little bit of everything. It's kind of a, it was a record that was sort of a third melodic, a third straight up the middle, and a third ripping, you know. And, um, yeah. and the bass tone-wise, as a bass player, it's probably my favorite bass tone I've ever recorded.
0: Agreed. I'm so glad you mentioned that. It was an album that you lost none of, none of your ferocity because you're, you're about, I'm going to give you a really... Big bit of praise here, if you don't mind me giving it to you, but I think you're about the most adept plectrum player or pick player that I could I could probably point out. <laughs> Yourself and Jason Newstead, I think, are extraordinary, and, and both of you never get anywhere near enough credit for your contribution to your respective bands. But you're bang on point there. As, as a bass player, who's played along to your material rather a lot, and I'm a finger-style bass player, and I've, I've found it rather challenging doing Dawn Patrol, for example, with my fingers. Um, but bye it's bye but it's it's something that I I don't never felt you got enough credit for for your contribution, not just to Megadeth but to heavy metal. But do you think that's changing? Because I notice that when I read forums and blabbermouth posts, I mean I know blabbermouth posts are full of people saying rather nasty things, but. Particularly about you, I notice you are starting to get a little bit of credit for your contribution musically as a bass player to heavy metal. So, are you finding that yourself, or is that just in the ether there and on the internet? People are starting to talk about it.
1: You know, I. You know, it's funny that you know there's some bass players who, um, you know, are kind of in um, a celebrity status. Um, just because of certain parts and lines and things that they've played over the years. And guys that I grew up with, be it Chris Squire, uh, Geezer Butler, Gady Lee, obviously hmm. Gene Simmons, um, you know. And and I guess, you know, now I'm kind of in that same category because of things like P Sells, but who's buying, you know, that riff being so
0: yeah. iconic. You know? Yeah.
1: You know, played so played so much on MTV. You know, all, all it takes is one guy at MTV to decide to use your riff, and suddenly you're an icon. <laughs> you know, so um, you know the the reasons why we become famous are often kind of interesting. You know, the course we take, but I think you know probably one of the biggest compliments I got was when Chris Adler was playing drums in Megadeth, and we were in um, was, I think we were in Mexico City playing Not fest mm. And he said, he goes, you know, it must be really fun for you in Megadeth because this band has these iconic bass breaks all throughout the set in all of these songs. It's not like you just have one. It's like every two or three songs, there's this massive, iconic bass break where the whole band stops for you to be featured. And I, and I had to stop and think, and I said, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, you know, that's not something I have in other bands. So I, for me, I noticed, you know, and obviously the drummer, I stop and you play, you know, or it's just you and me playing together. So he said, it's, it's really cool, And it took me back to, I think when, um, you know, the very beginning when Dave and I first met and, Hmm. and, uh, we, you know, um, you know, we were composing, what the very earliest songs? We, they weren't even albums yet. Like in, I'm talking 1983, yep. early '84. I mean, this is pre telling my business stuff. And we would um, we would be writing something, and he'd be working on a riff, and he would stop, and he would just go, "You know what? Why don't you play this part here?" And he would, and you know, he, he, even if he wrote it on guitar, he'd say, "Here, why don't you play this?" And I I loved it because you know, the early '80s was all about shredding and ripping and that was everything I moved to Los Angeles to go do hopefully in a new band. And that was exactly what was happening. Yeah. Um, you know, so, and, and it wasn't, it wasn't sort of what Eddie Van Halen had done because, you know, he, he had already done that. So we were doing something very new, something very fresh Hmm. with this sound that we were developing in Megadeth. Um, and I saw that sound developing, really accelerating past what Dave had even done in Metallica you know that, those, those, yep. those, that first year after Dave was out of Metallica, I saw his musical proficiency really accelerate and it was great that he and I worked together because it, it you know I was kind of this blank canvas I had a great I had great skills I could play well um, I just needed a direction to go in. And by working with Dave, we formed, you know, a unity, um, and mm-hmm. that I think was the beauty of of that those very earliest. Well, basically, what kind of became those first three records? Because some of those things we were working on in '83, '84, you know, didn't even make it onto a record, and some of them didn't until so far so good, so what? <laughs> so, um, well, wow,
0: okay, yeah,
1: you, you can know, hear that and you- a lot of, yeah, yeah, a lot of it, yeah. Yeah, a lot of material there, you know, that, that really defined, you know, the, the the sound and the basis of, of, of Megadeth.
0: <laughs> yeah, look, I hope you don't mind me asking one more question about Megadeth. I know we're here to talk about Metal Allegiance, but do you find in the audience... It's multi generational these days, a bit like what what happened to Kiss and of course Metallica. But they're they're a different beast altogether. They're a behemoth, you know. They're they're at the the vanguard or the standard of heavy metal internationally. But Megadeth are there now, really as well. So do you find do you find that you've got parents bringing kids to the extent where half of the audience? don't know the early material, so the the first three albums that you mentioned up to so far, so good, so what, and when you perform them, are you looking out to, I wouldn't say a sea of blank faces, but some of the younger people in the audience sort of looking at the whoever's brought them to the gig or somebody around thinking, is this a new song? But it's actually a song from... I
1: find it the opposite, to be honest with you. And that's a good question, because I find that the, young, the youngest generations now coming to Megadeth shows are the ones that know about the earliest music and it really speaks to um the strength of that early material um Mm. and i've i've i think you know megadeth's best path forward is our past (laughs) Um, because it's you know it's it's you see and i know look like when i go to Sabbath, for instance, when they were still touring, I wanted to hear the earliest stuff. You know, when I go see Iron Maiden, I love when they play The Prisoner and Transylvania and you know, those stuff off kind of the first three albums is like, oh my god, this is this is my Iron Maiden, you know. Um and it's so interesting that young fans um are really intrigued by the earliest negative material. And I see it on YouTube. Like suddenly something will push through social media and I'll see some young kid in a foreign country sitting there with this flying bee shredding through, you know, something off of killing is my business or off of peace health. Um, and, you know, as much as making new albums is important and it's, you know, it's important that we create new material and and that, you know, it's, but it's, it's funny that, and that's why I think killing, the reissue of Killing Is My Business, The Final Kill, was so important because um, when I, even when, in 2010, when we were doing the Rust in Peace uh, 20th anniversary, we started, i started to realize, and I think I had a different perspective because I'd been away from Megadeth for a few years, um, but very much in tune with what was going on in our culture and, and mm. with Megadeth music, um, I, I was a little—I think—probably a pretty good ear to the street with what was what fans wanted from Megadeth. And you know, when I came back, I remember Dave and I having conversations. That's why we ended up doing the twentieth anniversary countdown to Extinction. It's like, look, these are albums that are just the the epicenter of of the sweet spot of of Megadeth um, yep. certainly mainstream. Um, and, and I, one thing that was really clear to me, I remember talking to Dave about it, 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 it. It's is that killing of my business was this kind of cult sleeper classic, um, that had just been sort of brewing in the background <laughs> over all these years, you know, and um and then when we so i think that i think it was really important that that album came out this year with 35 years of megadeth uh as a as a remix as a reissue as mm. a repackaging because um there's there's something hauntingly charming about that album that uh fans have really started to latch on to yeah
0: years yeah i, I understand that because i remember in the mid 90s um i, I was being very focused on the era at the time, which was euthanasia and countdown, I remember getting a copy belatedly of Killing Is My Business. And I remember, you know, that run that you do in looking down the cross, the base run that you do, that trying to nail that over right. and over and over again, um, and just mm. having headphones on and just doing it. So it speaks to the power of that. And the other thing too, it's really interesting with, with. If you don't mind me saying the forefather as as you are one of the forefathers of, of thrash metal and heavy metal really um you get a lot of people going back to those first three albums i've had really good conversations with artists in the world of black metal so satiricon and enslaved in particular and the feedback i got from them was that they do get the blank faces about their early material which i consider classic nemesis divina by satiricon a classic let's just call it heavy metal hard rock i know that the cultists out there want to call it black metal or what have you, but it's very listenable black metal music. But a lot of the kids in the audience or the people that are not of my generation, I'm 40, are staring blankly back at at the musicians as they're performing it. But you have the opposite thing. But I understand that because it's iconic what you guys are doing. And it it actually crosses over well outside of heavy metal into popular music culture, as you alluded to with uh, um, P Cells being the uh, accompanying music to the MTV ads that were going on oh, I remember that
1: mm-hmm. yeah i remember that so yeah it's you know again i think it's 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 um you know it's it's uh there's you know again we're 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 blessed that we uh you know we were able to, you know, meet at this moment in time to create this sound, you know. We were the first kids that had punk rock and heavy metal records, you know. And so yeah, we yeah. brought the energy of punk with the proficiency of metal together and somehow created thrash metal.
0: That's what you've done. And look, with the five minutes or so I've got remaining, it's, uh, it's a wonderful conversation. I want to thank you for opening up about uh, your career in Megadeth. Yeah, and the sure. Life. But Metal Allegiance, look, I must say, I was pleasantly surprised cool. because there is a plethora a veritable bake sale of of, uh, various artist albums out there. So wonderful artists that come together to produce an album. And to be honest with you, some of them aren't that good. This one here is, so volume two, Power Drunk Majesty. Okay, this time around, you've teamed up with uh, Trevor Strand from Black Dahlia Murder. It's a great collab. You've got John Bush, former Anthrax Armoured Saint. Blitz, one of my favourite interview subjects ever. I love talking to Blitz and Overkiller, a classic outfit. Just amongst a number of other collaborators there. So what can you tell us about this this album this time around and how does it differ to the first album you guys released in 2015?
1: <coughs> um, I think that, you know, on this one, um, you know, we... You know, a second record... You know, it, I guess it's kind of like what we did with Megadeth. We did Killing Is My Business was our first adventure. You know, by the time we did Peace Cells, we had figured some things out. We tightened up musically. We learned how each other worked. And, you know, we we ended up making a, a better second record, I think. You know, it's better yep. sounding, yep. better skills. You know, very much the same thing with Metal Legions, You know, we we um, a second record together... Was going to go one of two ways. It was either going to fall flat on its face, or it was going to be better. And I think, Hmm. I think what we did, what you hear with this is you hear guys who we've got more experience working together. Um, I will give credit to to Mark Mengi for really stepping up um, um, as a um, sort of musical. Director, if you will. I think on the last record, a lot of that sort of fell in Alex Skolnick's hands. And because Alex Mm and Mike, or Alex and Mark, live near each other out on Long Island in Brooklyn, uh, they're able to collaborate and be closer to each other to sort of steer the ship. I think the first album gave Mark (laughs) more confidence walking into this album. Um, You know, Mark. Um, Mark was kind of the unknown on the first album because it started with, you know, me and Portnoy and Skolnick writing together. And then Mark came over to Portnoy's house, I think on day two, day two or three of the, of that first session and, and started throwing some ideas. Out. I was like, wow, this kid's got some good ideas here. You know, <laughs> it's kind of good sound. Yep. And we realized there was this kind of groove style that he had. He was certainly a fan of Pantera. He was a fan of, uh, Black Sabbath. Um, he was a—he was certainly a Megadeth fan, but he was, he was a finger player, you know? So he yeah. played bass different than me and all of a sudden he was like, wow, you know, this is kind of cool. We can, we can make this work with two bass players with two guys who play very differently from each other. And um, so we kind of found this little area because we're very kind of four very unsuspecting, you know, guys who musically you wouldn't think would mix, you know, between the four of us. There's such diverse you know, we're some, we come from such different backgrounds, yeah. Mike, yeah. frog guy and Alex is a you well, know, Alex and I are certainly thrash guys, you know, between Testament and Megadeth, but you know, he's also a very much a um,
0: jazz, you know, educated jazz music. Yeah. Musician. yeah. Uh, it's a good match, mate. I like you your, know, I like you guys in our, in playing our, together. Ra-
1: yeah. Yeah. And you know, and then Mengi kind of find out okay, well, who's the, where does he fit musically? I mean, he's obviously a friend to get along, but it's like, how does he fit musically? So I think that first album was sort of, you know, kind of naturally defined our roles, uh, as, as we, as the core four, as we call it. And, and then we decided on this album, we wanted to keep the writing as the core four. Um, but also, um, you know, we wanted to expand the um we wanted to limit the, the, how many participants we had on this record, but we wanted to expand where we got them from. And yeah. I think a big part of that was let's dip over into the European um metal gene pool, if you will. Um and, you know, to get guys like Johan from the Montamarth and Floor from Nightwish and mm-hmm. you know, certainly um one of the I think Max Cavalera, who just, I think, represents heavy metal internationally so well anyway. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, that I think this album has this international flavor to it, um, whereas I would kind of think the first record was sort of like an American band with an American metal sound. I think this one has grew vastly expanded to a much more international representation of heavy metal. Mm.
0: Okay, mate. I better make this my final question because my twenty minutes is is up or thereabouts. Any plans to tour? Do you think you'll be coming down here anytime soon?
1: You know, we are open to doing anything. Um, one of the reasons that I really wanted to drive the bus on getting a second record done is that we initially started as just a jam session on motorboats um, on the maiden voyage. Yeah, boat back two thousand fourteen. That led to Portnoy. Saying, hey, why don't we write a record? Once you have a record, now you have a you have a sound. You've got some original material, and as we continued to play events, do some kind of random touring, and the guys played Bloodstock Festival in the UK a couple years back. All of a sudden, it's like you know, <coughs> excuse me, we don't want to go on stage and be a cover band. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. if we're going to go do this let's go have some of our songs and then we can sure play a few fan favorites here and there, but let's, let's be an artist, you know, because we are artists, every one of us, you know, we're, we're original composers. We're, um, we're artists at, in our truest sense. So, you know, I really was pushing to get a second record, uh, done. Um, so that I think that then opens up the opportunities for us to be able to go do more things together. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know, so once this record comes out now here in September, I think that opens up, uh, and Hey, down where you're at in Australia, of course, we would love to go there. In fact, we were actually going to go there for, uh, back when the, uh, sound wave, uh, oh, so yeah, apart. so, you know, we've, uh, <laughs> yeah. we, you know, again, and so sometimes the things happen beyond our control, but, uh, yeah, we were actually scheduled to go there. Um, and we had, we'd actually started looking at some festivals and events in Europe this last summer. And just due to some scheduling stuff, we had to, you know, we we, we found a nice window to put the album out. So I think, you know, now that the album is going to be out, I think that sort of triggers all the rest of it and opens up the Mm -hmm. opportunities for future stuff together.
0: Cool, mate. Mate, these conversations are always over far too quick, as far as I'm concerned, especially when I'm talking to a legend such as yourself. So I just want to offer you a congratulations on two things before I do. I was in my very early 20s and I emailed you, and you won't remember every interaction, so I certainly don't expect you to remember this, but you emailed me back and you answered my questions and you are very congenial, it must be said, and it's not always the case when you're meeting your heroes when you're in your early 20s, as the old saying is, try not to meet your heroes, but I had a very good interaction with you back then, so I want to thank you for that. And the final thing is congratulations on carrying yourself so well in regards to your Christian faith. I don't think it would be easy, and uh, particularly in this world we live in where... um, I think people in the rock and roll spotlight have certain expectations of them, but you've always carried yourself so well, mate. And I don't think there's a bad word that anybody could say about you online or uh, after meeting you at any one of the meet and greets. And as I said, it's not always like that. But I just I just thought it was important if I ever had the opportunity, mate, to share with you that I really appreciated it back in the day because uh, – you don't know what to expect when you reach out to somebody. And also the other thing about the Christian faith. So if it's congratulations that I can afford to, yeah, there you Uh, go.
1: Yes. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I'm glad glad that that uh, had an impact on you and hopefully it does on other people. And, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that, you know. Glory to God on that one. He's he's, uh, he's he's good at whipping, he's good at making lemonade out of lemons like a guy <laughs> like me. <laughs> so he, 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 guess he did a pretty good job on
0: me. Oh, mate, you're too modest. You're too modest, mate. So uh, you're an excellent bass player, great musician, and just keep on doing what you're doing, please.
1: Cool, man. Thank you so much. Great, great
0: to chat with you tonight. No worries, mate. Okay, all the best. Yeah, bye. Thanks very much, bye. bye. You have been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. My name's Andrew Mackay-Smith. That was a conversation that featured David Ellison from the bands Megadeth and also Metal Allegiance. Thanks so much for listening.